I would ask you to turn your Bibles to Judges 19, Judges 19, um, and we'll be reading in just a few minutes. But uh, can you believe, can you believe it? Thanksgiving is just four days away. I mean, are you already starting to diet to get ready for, um, you know, I used to only get one Thanksgiving meal, but now that I'm married, I get two. And, um, you know, the only day of the year people eat lunch at three o'clock, you know, um, right, or supper. I don't know what it is, but, you know, you eat lunch and you, you can't not eat lunch because you get hungry. Of course, you guess you could, but um, you'll regret it if you do, right, after you eat at three and then six and however many more times you might want to eat in between there. Um, but um, dessert and all that stuff. But can you believe it? Can't I can't wait. Uh, one of the best days of the year. This has always been one of my one of my favorite weeks of the year. Uh, you know, as a kid, Thanksgiving is always the entry point to the Christmas season. It's kind of a preview of Christmas. You get a few days off school. Um, you get to eat pretty much the same stuff you're going to eat again in a few weeks, right? Uh, but but uh, you know, I don't know about you, but my memories um, of Thanksgiving and Christmas they kind of run together because um, you, you kind of watch some of the same stuff. You start watching Christmas movies, you know, in, in, in prep for Christmas. Maybe maybe you don't. I do. Um, um, but uh, from the eating to the gatherings, from the days off, from the shopping, all that stuff kind of runs together. Um, and, and of course, now it seems like Christmas, the season starts up about a month earlier than it used to. Um, of course, some of you may say, hey, we, did, we didn't put the tree up until Christmas Eve, right? Um, that's not, some people talk about that in the, in the old days. Y'all, y'all aren't. Uh, that's a little bit before some of your time. Um, right, you bring the tree in because you don't start, you know, the old, the ancient days or the old days, they didn't start celebrating Christmas until Christmas. And then the 12 days of Christmas would go on after on into the new year. Um, but we, we start celebrating Christmas around Halloween, don't we? Um, you know, and uh, I've been listening to Christmas music. Um, I think, what is it, 98.9? I didn't know that station existed until a few weeks ago. But I've been listening to Christmas music um, since Halloween. And uh, with the weather like it's been, it's just kind of more appropriate than normal. Um, last uh, Monday, Monday, Lindsay and I went to see uh, the new animated How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Um, and he still stole Christmas. Um, but uh, he, he gave it back. Uh, he always does, doesn't he? Um, but but uh, if you want to get in the Christmas spirit, um, if you want to get in the Christmas spirit, go and see that movie. Uh, it's so good, so colorful, so fun. Um, and, and they're not paying me to say this. I wish they were, but um, just so good. I've seen so many versions of the Grinch, right? And uh, as most of you have. Um, but uh, the the Whoville, the Whoville Choir, or the Carolers, that their rendition of "God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen," it was really good. Um, and they sing the first verse twice, and the gospel is so crystal clear when they're singing that. Man, I, I, the Holy Spirit filled me up in that that movie theater. I didn't uh, never had that happen before. Um, usually, it's, the, it's another kind of spirit, right? And in the movies, but uh, man, it was so good. You know, I, I love that song, and the gospel is so clearly proclaimed in, in that in that uh, old carol. Um, but it's it's a good reminder of the real season, real reason for the for the season. So I cannot recommend. Go and see the Grinch, even if you don't have kids or you just hate Christmas, and I hope you don't hate Christmas. Or if you do, you're a Grinch, and you would do well to see that movie. Um, um, and and uh, you can repent later. Um, but um, no, great movie. Go see it. But anyways, uh, we're, we're still a way off from Christmas. I, I have to kind of push the brakes midway through November because I want to start preaching Christmas sermons because I'm, I'm writing and re- preparing Christmas sermons. So I have to kind of you know, hold myself back here uh, as we get close to the season. But uh, this isn't a Christmas sermon. Uh, but if you listen closely and you look just over the horizon, you might hear and see it off in the distance today. But uh, today is the ending of what has been a three-week study at some of the most obscure, um, challenging 
chapters in the Bible. Um, Judges 17, 18, 19, of course, 20 and 21. We won't be reading those, but uh, this whole part of the Bible in general is very challenging, very dark. And this is kind of the, the uh, uh, if this sermon would have been five, six hours long, you know, wow, can you imagine that? If this sermon would have been five, six hours long, this would be kind of the last point of the sermon because the last two weeks have been um, kind of the beginning in the middle. Now we're into the end of what has been a time in the book of Judges. Now this is really, um, this is a time period for Israel that could be called the dark ages, the darkest of ages, the darkest of times for ancient Israel. Um, we've discussed this. It was a time of lostness, a time of lawlessness. Um, it was a time uh, where there was so much chaos, so much unrest. Um, and, and, and really, as we've read the story, though, nobody seems really surprised that things are that bad, right? That there isn't this sort of shock and awe. There isn't this sort of, oh my goodness, I can't believe things are so bad, so lawless, so chaotic. Because remember, in those days, In those days, there was no king. Everyone simply did what seemed right in their own eyes. And of course, knowing what usually happens when we do things that seem right in our own eyes, the chaos and the conflict and the problems weren't too surprising. There was no king. There was no worship of the one true God. There was no unity. Uh, So it wasn't surprising that the moral lines were blurred. It wasn't surprising that the nation had fell into paganism and idol worship because they did not trust God to be their king, because they did not worship God as their king, and more than that, as their creator, as Lord of and over all, because they dissolved from the faith community, they quit gathering together, they deferred to individualism and tribalism, and they all did what seemed right in their own eyes. Now, Pastor Chuck Smith uh, founded the Calvary Chapel movement. Greg Laurie and many others are part of that to this day. Uh, But I I heard him speak on this. He summarized this probably better than anyone I've ever heard um, on on this repeated refrain of of they did what was right in their own eyes. They had no king. Um, He he says there is an insight into the moral degeneracy. Um, They had lost the fact that God was to be their king. They lost the consciousness of, of that fact. And he says that every man and every woman, every man, rather than being ruled by God, was doing that which was right in his own eyes. It was a period of total anarchy. Everybody just did what they wanted to do. So if it was right in their own eyes, it, 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 it is this sort of what they're trying to bring to pass, this idea that you just feel, if you feel like it's right, then it's probably right. And if it hurts someone else, it doesn't matter Because it's just about what's right to you. If it feels good to you, do it. If it feels right, do it. And this is the kind of chaotic condition that has come or came to Israel. This kind of anarchy where everyone was doing what they thought was right, not really following the government that God set in place or the law of God. And the result from that, the the end game of all that, When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, eventually trouble hits everyone right in the eye. Right? When you do what is right in your own eye, and I do it, and they do it, and everybody does it, when we are all out for ourselves, when we just do what we think is right for us, and we do not care who or what is affected by our actions, and we simply follow our own hearts, eventually everyone is hit right in or between the eyes. I mean everyone, including you and including me. 
We all won't be all right if we all think we are always right. Now, that's a tongue twister, but let's say that together Uh, once more. Say it with me. We all won't be all right if we all think we are always right. And as complicated as that may be to say, it's even more complicated when we all think that we are always all right. And we all realize that we're not all right after all. What seems right for us is sever, sev, seldom, if ever, right for all. Uh, again, this story is framed around the idea that God intended Israel to be a theocracy. God wanted to be their king. He wanted the people to submit to His rules, His reign, His sovereignty, to show the world that maximum freedom is found under God's authority under God's sovereignty. There was no king meant that the people were not submitting to God. Everybody was doing what he felt was right. And there was great confusion. The narrator in this story doesn't condone their sin, but he doesn't condemn them either. He simply describes the confusion that existed in this period of history for the children of Israel. The confusion and the chaos wasn't really surprising. And if we can see, I think you can see a connection to our own society, to our own culture, to our own country in these stories. But what was surprising about this generation specifically was this came so soon after the days of Moses and Joshua. Some scholars believe that Joshua led the nation into, the, into Canaan around 1400. And most see that Judges 17 through 21 is not really chronologically in line with the previous chapters, but it's more of an appendix. It's more of a footnote to what actually started the widespread falling away. And if you remember how this story started in Judges chapter 2, all that generation also was gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. And they went after other gods. And you can almost see chapter 17 through 21 as a footnote, as a, as a reference to what that falling away looked like little by little, beginning here and spreading all over. As Joshua was laid to rest... In the hills of Ephraim, just over the hill was Micah. And the rogue Levite who saw a vulnerable nation, a nation without a leader that sank it into idolatry and unbelief. But again, I want you to understand how appalling this quick falling away was. In 1406, the conquest begins. Joshua's death and Judges 17 both take place around 1375. So within 30 years of the conquest, not even 100 years removed from the exodus that that saw the plagues hit Egypt, that saw the Red Sea part, the manna and the quail and the water from the rock, the Jordan River crossing, the walls falling at Jericho, the sun standing still still to give them daylight to win the battle. Can you believe it? Not even a hundred years after all of that happened, they turned away. Now, of course, we are thousands of years from when this all took place in our own day and age. But we are a country and a people so saturated in truth, 
So blessed and sustained by God's grace that our falling away and our drifting away is just as appalling in my opinion. But maybe not very surprising either. Because after all, if God's own chosen nation... If God's own people immersed into His law, recreated after His image at the mountain of Sinai, delivered through Moses and Joshua that were set up for 100% success, if God's own people found a way to stumble, maybe it reveals more about human nature in its universal and timelessly truth. Maybe it reveals just what's wrong with all of us. The Scriptures cohesively and collectively teach that something is that there's something about ourselves, about our ancestors, about our descendants. It teaches something about our friends, our enemies, our neighbors, our church family, atheists, Jews, and Gentiles. The Bible cohesively agrees what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no difference. Well, yeah, I know there's not a difference, but I'm, hey, at least I'm not those people, right? At least I'm not, I don't sin like those people sin. Can we all agree that they sin worse than we sin? Can we all agree on that? And Paul says, no, we can't get that out of your system. There is no distinction for all, all. All can't be always all right if all have also fallen from His sight. We drift toward darkness. We stumble by nature. Why is that? You ever wondered? Now, some might say it's because our heads weren't screwed on just right. Some might even say it's because our shoes are too tight. No, (laughs) no. While the roots, yeah, well, just make sure y'all awake. While the roots of our fallen, rebellious, stubborn nature may require a lengthy theological study, the results do not. We don't have to have a two hour long understanding of why we are fallen to be able to look around our world today and realize we are a fallen people. We always have been, we always will be. Look around. People everywhere are hurting and struggling and stumbling. And while we bypass and ignore the solution that we are all offered from heaven, yet we strive day after day, chasing after some kind of peace and solace. And nine out of ten of us don't find peace or solace. We only find toil and strife, sorrow and anxiety, bondage and chaos. Just as it was in those days. And it it would almost be true to say that historians could write years from now regarding our generation among all that has gone awry. In those days, they did not know the Lord. They did not worship Him as King because long after we're gone, He will still be King. And He will still be Lord. It seems like we're plagued to be in this cycle that the judges' generation knew so well. Eventually, for all generations and cultures that forget the Lord, that cease to never worship Him or cease or never worship Him as King, eventually it all unravels beyond repair. Eventually, the moral decline, the chaos, the discord gets too heavy and it breaks the back of the generation trying to carry it. Not because God necessarily intervenes. Most of the time, He does not have to put an end to generations like theirs or even like ours. 
In fact, the self-inflicted wounds and chaos created by a generation doing right by its own eyes usually leads to self-destruction without God ever choosing to judge anybody. Because when everyone does what is right, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, eventually most will have black, blinded, or gouged eyes. Eventually, I won't even exist. Even if some of the strong, savvy, most cunning seem to evade and always avoid oppression and destruction, eventually it catches up to everyone. Unless, unless you say, well, God might intervene. God might choose to judge the people. He might. Or maybe He will save the people. But that would require people realizing how lost they are. Now, Judges 19 is where this generation's sin comes to a head in the most vile and wretched way imaginable. Judges 19 is a black eye on the history of Israel. It's a story that you may not know, but it's a story that you may not want to know. But in many ways, you have felt the impact and the effects and the response of this story your entire life. You just didn't know it until today. Now, there are parts of this story that I will not read. There are parts of this story that you will wish you could forget if you do read it. It's that bad. It's that dark. It's that horrifying. That in a nation of God's own chosen people, in the shadow of His undeniable power being made known to them, to the whole world, in a world where the mightiest of all empires have fallen because of God's saving power and favor towards Israel, that His own people would succumb to this low, to such an atrocious and offensive reality... It's a, it, it, it leaves you speechless. But nonetheless, it happened. And I want to read Judges 19 up until that point. At that point, you'll know why. We'll stop. You'll know when we get there that this story will seem eerily similar to another story that you've heard. A story you've heard referenced and that you've referenced. You've used that story to describe our own generation. Maybe countless people have and maybe the better analogy is actually this story. Because at the end of all of this, our story will become so clearly tied to this story so much that it will leave an impact on you forever. I really believe. So Judges 19 takes a while to come together, but when it does, it gets pretty intense. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim He took for himself a concubine, a mistress, from Bethlehem and Judah. Now, this is not the same Levite from the previous chapters. It's just an indication of the breakdown of the faith community and how many who were supposed to be the closest to God were leading people away from God. The blame for Israel's falling away does not fall on those who were far away from God dragging people down with them or those creating such a big mess that it impacted believers. It was an inside job. It always is. The faith community always comes undone from the inside out. We might point our fingers at them, but them were never in here to cause the trouble 
The blame for Israel's falling away falls on the insiders leading people away from God through bad representation, unfaithfulness, and corruption. Not just scandal and hypocrisy, but also in corrupting what it meant to worship and believe in the one true God. What it meant to serve God. So many of the Levites had turned God's platform into their platform. They had turned God's house into their house. Here's the real stinger. They turned a community of sacrifice into a cult of self. Now what was meant to be a message of look look at how God is pardoning our sins. Look at how these sacrifices, our sins are washed away. Now we should respond with faith and commitment seeing that He undoubtedly and undeniably is committed to us. He is good, keeping His covenant to us. How can we respond but with love and honor and sacrifice? But they responded by turning inwards and making it all about themselves and using God as a means of gain, not a place for sacrifice. Have we followed that trend a little bit, maybe, I think, in our world today? Uh, I think we are called to worship God, giving Him the highest esteem, proclaiming His infinite worth, resolving that the call from heaven is the highest and most privileged call. We are so blessed that He hears our voice. He knows our name. We can hear His voice. We know His name. I mean, how marvelous, how awesome is that? But somehow the ills of our nature, we tear down these communities meant for prayer and worship and we rebuild them in our own image. The Levite, like the one from the previous story, moved away from God's plan and led so many others with him. The first tragedy, as it was in many cultures in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, is is that some get by with anything and most suffer in every way. God had particularly designed Israel with its laws and its codes to be a nation where, unlike the rest of the world, women and children, foreigners and outcasts, even criminals, were cared for and given special protection and opportunities for redemption. If you read the book of Leviticus, it may seem archaic in our day, but its moral code was hundreds, thousands of years ahead of its time. And here we find a Levite, a supposed model of morality, has taken a mistress. Now this tells us that the nation of Israel had devolved in such a way that women were being enslaved and sold to wealthy men. Whereas the law of Moses elevated women. In a world where women had zero rights, where only the powerful and wealthy men had any at all, the law of Moses made everyone equal. And number one, it made, it made sure that women were not seen as sexual commodities, but rather valuable to God. But in those days, in those days, this Levite bought this woman to be his slave. And verse 2 tells us, but his concubine according to him, played the harlot against him. But the truth of the matter was, she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem. The concubine, the mistress, the prostitute, ran to her father's house in Bethlehem for refuge and protection. But eventually, he misses her. After four months, nobody had more than just her. But eventually, he realizes he's paying some brothel 
a subscription to have this woman as his mistress, so he better go find her to make sure that she's still his. So she, he goes to Bethlehem, and what follows is this very odd, very strange, but remarkable story where this father shows this man who had so treated his daughter with such ill and, 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 and you know, disdain, but this father is remarkably kind and hospitable to this Levite. And suddenly the girl takes the back seat in the story as her father begins to interact with the Levite for her. As the father says, hey, I'll take care of you, my child. The Levite is treated far better than he should have been, if only to contrast how he had treated the girl. Look at verse 3. Then her husband arose, or her, she wasn't married to them, but her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So he, she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him. He stayed with him three days so that they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning and he stood it apart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterward go your way. So they sat down and the two of them ate and drank together. And the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart, but the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate again. And when the man stood to depart, and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here. Let your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early, so that you may get home. So we see the father is so interested in keeping them in his house. And he almost, it almost seems as if he's trying to protect them from something that they aren't ready to go through. Verse 10. However, the, young, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he arose and departed and came to Jebus, which is Jerusalem, with him were two saddled donkeys, his concubine also with him. They were near Jebus. The day, the, the day was far spent, and the servant said to his master, Come, please let us turn aside unto the city of Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners. We are, not children, are we not children of Israel? We will go to Gabeah. Now, in the ancient world, most cities were not welcoming to foreigners. Even those traveling through at this time, Jerusalem was occupied by, uh, by, by Canaanites. They had not conquered that city yet. So, so God specifically called Israel to be different, to be a light in a place of refuge, hospitable and welcoming to all people. So the people decide not to stay in a foreign city, but to go to their own place because it would be safer there. Verse 13. So he sent his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gabeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gabeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside to go in to lodge in Gabeah, and when he went in, he sat down at the open square, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Now Gabeah and Ramah and Jerusalem and Bethlehem are all within ten miles of each other. But there was no room in anyone's inn or anybody's house that night. But this was Israel. 
This was God's country. So unlike the pagan cities where it would be suicide to sleep under the moonlight in the city square, it would be safe for them to sleep in the city park. Wouldn't it? Now you'll remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot entertained some strangers who were actually angels. Lot entertained some strangers one night and they have this very odd exchange. But because you know how the story ends, you know why Lot was so persistent. The story goes, When Lot saw the angels, he arose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. Spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. Lot said, You don't want to sleep in the park. It's not safe for anybody. Especially Strangers. But Israel's towns would be safe, wouldn't they? God's country was not full of vile and sinful, immoral, dangerous people, was it? Verse 16, Just then an old man came, and from the work of the field at the evening who also were in the mountains of Ephraim, he was staying in Gabeah, whereas the men of the place whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? Where do you come from? So he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord, which was not the real house of the Lord, but was that, that pagan temple that Micah's Levi had built. But there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for the female servant and for the young man. And notice how he refers to his mistress as his slave. Because that's what he viewed her as. And for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lacking of anything. The, man, the old man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be, be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. You do not want to do that. So he brought him into his house and he gave fodder to the donkeys and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So we have this older man, perhaps from the generation before, welcoming this Levi into his house. He goes far and beyond even washing their feet, taking on the form of a servant. Can you imagine what that young girl must have felt like as someone treated her like she was more than a slave? More than just a mistress. And now the story turns very dark. As dark as it could ever go. Because in those days, they did not know the Lord. This story seems like it should not be found in this chapter. This story seems as if it is straight out of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was a story that, again, I think it still aches the heart of God every time He thinks about it. I think that this story caused the whole, gener the whole universe to groan with hope in anticipation of a better tomorrow. Verse 22, And as they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, worthless and perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, Bring out the man who came to you so that we may know him. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. 
Seeing that this man is coming to my house, do not commit this outrage. But notice that there's a difference in their mind of what is wicked because this man is still so morally bankrupt that he would say, verse 24, Look, here is my virgin daughter. Here is this man's mistress. Let me bring them out to you. But the men would not heed them. So then the man, the Levite, the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And I won't read what happens next. But the result was the abuse and the torture of this young girl. And as news spread throughout the land, all that could be said was what is recorded in verse 30. No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. The people began to panic. Because they began to ask themselves this question. What if God judges us like He did Sodom? Because unlike the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels blinded those men. This story is far worse than Genesis 19. This story is as worse, as bad as it can get. What if God judges us like He did Sodom? Would you blame Him if He did? Would you blame him? How do you think the father up the road felt when he heard this news? How do you think that our father in heaven felt when he saw this happen? They weren't afraid of judgment until something like this happened. Something that was clear and recorded as a, uh, something that had a clear and recorded precedent as to how God would deal with it. So as the elders and the tribes met together, they declare all-out war against the tribe of Benjamin, which controlled this city at this time. Civil war breaks out. Towns are set on fire. Thousands of are slaughtered on every tribe to the point that one tribe barely existed afterwards. There is no peace. There is no revival. There is no chaos. Eventually the war ends, and everyone just gets tired and goes home. Literally, that's how the story ends. Judges 21 tells us, then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at the time, every man to his own tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance, because all that matters is what we have, right? Who cares about everybody else? In those days, there was no king. In those days, can you, can you get the picture? In those days, it was a godless, pagan, selfish, immoral, bankrupt society. Nobody worshipped God, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and everybody suffered because of it. But here we are. And I've got to ask you, we've got to ask this question. Because I know you're curious. How could they get by with such sin? I mean, you, maybe you knew the judge's generation was messed up, but come on, this is different, right? 
I mean, haven't you heard people for years evoke the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and they say things like this, if God doesn't judge us, He'll have to apologize to them. I mean, you've heard that. You've said that, right? If God doesn't pour hellfire and brimstone out on us, then why did He do it to them? Here we have His own nation commit a far worse sin, willing to do even more. How do we make sense of that? There's only one way that I know how. God withheld wrath on Judah because of one person. One person. What about the Abraham thing? Remember when Abraham was praying for God to spare Sodom? And God said, hey, if you find 50 or 40, or, and he got down to 10, if you can find 10 people, I'll spare the city. Guess what? There weren't 10. So God destroyed the nation. But in those days, God was willing to spare the nation if you could just find one person. God withheld wrath from Judah because He was in the process of welcoming someone, welcoming, opening up to one person. And this someone would eventually bring about the salvation of the whole world. Because you see, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And God knew they needed, we needed a Savior. And there was a young, pagan, Moabite girl Married a man from Bethlehem who died, no, who died, no doubt, to the many, because of the many diseases and plagues going through the land. And this young girl, none other than Ruth, was seeking refuge after being widowed. Her sister being widowed also, they both married brothers. Ruth, unlike her sister, did not want to go back to Moab because despite the fact that Judah was so immoral and so bankrupt in their faith, she still believed that the one true God of Judah was greater than any other God of the Moabites. The Moabite people had witnessed the power of God as the Mosaic group came through the land. They knew He was the only God no matter how fallen His people may be. Ruth longed for the God she had heard about. And even though Naomi said, listen, you are better off back home. You are a young, vulnerable foreigner. Please go home because it's not safe for you here. But Ruth stuck her foot in the ground. She stood up to her mother-in-law and said, listen, you should leave. I can't support you. Do you remember what Ruth said that day? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, I've heard a lot about Him, your God is going to be my God. And can you believe that one profession of faith changed the world? Do you believe that one young girl making that decision that I am going to have faith in the God of these people even though His people have turned away? This changed the course of history. Because Ruth found a redeemer. She found a refuge, a man named Boaz. And a few years later, she would hold in her arms a baby named Obed. And a few years after that, she would hold in her arms a grandson named Jesse. And not long after that, she would live to the day to hold her great-grandson, 
in her arms, David. And of course, one day, one day, a day that we will be celebrating very soon in the old little town of Bethlehem, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. Jesus. Jesus was the reason why God withheld judgment from Judah after Judges 19. Jesus is, is the reason why God has withheld just judgment from you. From us, from America, from the world, from the universe. Jesus is the reason why we have hope. Listen, He's the reason why we can cling to hope knowing the atrocities that happened in Judges 19 will not go into eternity without being dealt with. That young girl will be vindicated. The vilest oppressors of our day will be judged. The most oppressed and afflicted will find justice. Her father and that stranger adorning her is a preview that she was eternally in good hands. Hands that would hold and heal her of such awful and senseless sin. But in Christ, we all find salvation knowing that no matter what we've done or who we've been, He is both justice and salvation. He paid for all sins. He paid for our sins. And bigger than that, He promises that He is a place of refuge forever. One of the most forgotten sentences that Jesus ever spoke it's also the most famous. But we forget this most important part. In my Father's house. Hey guys, my Father's house is open to everybody. And there is room. There is, whew, wait until you see the rooms. They are so gargantuan. They are like mansions. They are so awesome. My Father's house, I have prepared a place for you. For you. For everyone. His Father's house is open to us all. No matter if we're orphans or outcasts, rejects or refugees, criminals or crestfallen, disappointed, empty-handed, His Father's house is our Father's house and it's open. It's open to you. Unlike ancient Israel, which was not open to everyone, Unlike the old towns of Judah, which were just as bad as Sodom ever thought about being. But God spared Israel. Just like He spared you. Aren't you glad? Maybe you've never heard that story. I hope you don't forget it. Maybe this story is the backdrop of your story. The story of how we all have escaped judgment, how we all find justice and hope, how we all receive salvation. Maybe your response to this is run to Jesus and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Maybe you need to run to Him and ask for forgiveness and seek refuge for sins you've, you thought you, you, you would never escape. Maybe you need to come to Him and, 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 and turn and lay, lay your life down at His feet because His Father's house is open to you and that just opens, that just, that just, that your heart melts at that reminder reminder if you're wondering if there's a day of reckoning coming don't look forward look back Jesus paid it all and unto us 
Forever and always, a Savior has come. And He says to you and He says to me, Come to me. In my Father's house, there's a place for you. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making a place for us. God, as we sing this song that is just our attempt to praise you and say thank you, God, I hope that you would move in your people's hearts. God, as the altar is open and if this opportunity is for them to lay their life down and physically show the whole world that they are turning their life over to you, that they are seeking and they're accepting the refuge that you offer. They're running to the embrace that you have made and you've offered us all. Father, thank you for sparing the nation of Judah. Thank you for sparing our nation. Thank you for sparing me. Thank you for sparing the nation because Ruth down the road was just moving in. Thank you that you brought through her David and you brought through David Jesus and Jesus says to all of us, there's a place for you. So in a land, in a day and age when there was no king and there was no God, God, I pray that we might not accept that as reality. That we might turn our eyes to you and proclaim that you are our king and our Lord and worship you before it's too late. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.